All right, good morning, Mosaic. How's it going today? Good. Like Bill said, my name is Jeff. My wife and I have been here for almost four years uh, now. Um, Yeah, so Bill is right. Yeah, I got the same text that he got um, last night at about 7. And if you're wondering how it is that uh, somebody like me ends up getting that text, I think I've kind of figured it out. Um, So here's what I imagine happened. Aaron, he starts feeling sick and gets sicker throughout the day. And finally, he feels like, I don't think I can go on tomorrow. And so he asks Bill if he'll preach today. And Bill, as you heard, said, no, I'm taking my wife out uh, for her birthday. And so Aaron then asks himself the question, okay, who do I know who I'm sure is not doing anything tonight on a Saturday night and is just sitting at home? I better call Jeff. And he was correct. I, that's, that's exactly what, what I was doing. I was just sitting at home. Um, so I said, sure. And I'm, I'm so gratified uh, that uh, Aaron and Bill trust me uh, to uh, come and, and talk a bit today. Um, just a, a real pleasure uh, for me. Uh, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer one more time, uh, and then uh, we'll look at the Word. And Father, we are so very thankful um, that you love us. And Lord, we want, we want to see the world as you see it. We want to be a people marked by love and mercy and justice and also joy. Um, and Lord, we, we pray that uh, as we look in your word today, we will we'll see a little bit clearer who you are and who you've called us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's... Here's kind of my process in a case like this where I've got to kind of think through something uh, real fast. What I, what I do is I just kind of try to think about the moment in which we're living and the place where we kind of find ourselves uh, and, I, you know, what, what's on our mind and what's going on in the world around us and what people are talking about. And I just try to ask myself the question, given where we all kind of collectively find ourselves right now, what is it that I most need to hear that Jesus says to us uh, about who he is and about what it means to follow him? And as I was thinking through that, um, I started looking at a story about Jesus in the book of Luke. And this story uh, reminded me about kind of a weird and awkward living situation um, that I had about 15 years ago. Um, So when Bill asked that question, I I hope everybody is still married, you know, in here. um, Or I hope that uh, nobody just had awkward conversations with their roommate um, in here. But I had a kind of a weird one. So I'm going to talk about my roommate, Trenton, from about 15 years ago. This is when I was living in Chicago. And uh, Trenton was a terrific guy, uh, but he, he had this tendency to do some bizarre things that I just couldn't really explain. Um, and, and then when you asked him about it, his explanations didn't really make it any clearer um, to me, what, what he was doing and why he was doing it. For instance... Uh, yeah, I, I remember this time when uh, Trenton came back uh, to uh, the place we were living, and I was sitting in a chair with a, a reading lamp uh, on right over me, and I was sitting there reading, and Trenton comes over and he turns off the light and just walks out of the room. 
And I'm just kind of sitting there, what, what in the world <laughs> are you doing? And so I get up and I, I go and ask him, Trenton, what's the deal? Why did you turn off that light I was just using in there? And he just kind of gets this little smirk on his face and he says, I think it was overheating. <laughs> okay, Trenton, fine. Uh, the weirdest one of these uh, happened when uh, I came back from spring break uh, this one year, and I came in, and all of my clothes had been removed from my closet and replaced by several formal dresses. And so I went to Trenton, and as, as politely as I could, asked Trenton, why are there dresses in my closet? And he just looks at me and says, they're Heather's, which might be a great explanation if I have any idea who Heather is. And, you know, I think that this, I think that this happened, it wasn't so much the things he would do, it was the, how impossible it was to get a real explanation uh, out of him and how he, like, he didn't even nearly answer the questions uh, that I asked him. I think this kind of pushed my buttons uh, because, so I'm, I happen to be the youngest child in my family. Any youngest children in here? Only a few of you, boy, I feel like we're outnumbered. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... For those of you in here who are the youngest child, uh, as you know, sometimes it can be difficult to feel heard um, in the family uh, when you're the youngest. And so I feel like sometimes um, interacting with Trenton, uh, because he wouldn't really answer my questions, I really didn't feel like I was being heard. And the reason I think about that story here is because... Um, as, as, I look, as we look at this story of Jesus interacting with somebody who has some very important questions for him today, uh, sometimes it doesn't seem like Jesus even really hears the questions that this guy is asking and instead decides to answer a different question. Uh, so today we're in uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. Let's read a little bit together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So starting with a softball question, just a real light and easy and fluffy question, right? Uh, yeah, that's a, that, that's a pretty big one right there. And Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. So clearly, you know, this, if you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about the message of Jesus, you know this is a, a really recurring theme, you know, this uh, kind of twofold commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is the important stuff here. This is the real meat of Jesus's message and his whole ethos that he brings. It, it, it kind of reminds me, I was reading uh, a blog by a guy named Fred Clark. He's one of my favorite uh, bloggers, and he was talking about, he lives in Pennsylvania, and uh, he was talking about the driver's test in the state of Pennsylvania, um, and it's been, a, it's been years since I've taken a driver's test, so I don't remember what it was like for me. But he was talking about the driver's test uh, that he had taken. And he said that he, he took his driver's test, and he got, he got 9 out of 10 questions correct. 
And that's all that his results said. He got nine out of ten questions correct. And he thought to himself, well, that's... It didn't tell him what he had missed. And he thought to himself, well, that's kind of disturbing that there's something that I missed on the test. There's something about driving. There's something about the rules of the road that I don't know. And he went up and asked about it. And the people there said, yeah, we really don't know either um, what you missed. Uh, but you got a 9 out of 10, so that, that, that's a passing grade, so you're fine. And the more he thought about this, he kind of thought to himself, you know, they, the way they grade these, you know, they say as long as you get a 7 out of 10, um, you're correct. But not all of these questions are necessarily as important as all the other questions on a driver's test. Uh, you know, if if I get wrong a question about how long before I turn do I need to put on the turn signal, you know, there's a little bit of margin there. But if they ask the question, what do you do when you see a red light? That's a pretty important one, isn't it? If somebody, somebody gets that question wrong on the driver's test, I'm not sure if I want them to pass the test. I don't know if I want them to be issued a driver's license, even if they got the other nine questions correct. And this... This statement here, these commands from Jesus, this is, this is the red light question um, from Jesus, I feel like. You know, if we don't understand Jesus here, then we don't really understand his message at all. You answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So let's go on. But he, this being the expert in the law, the lawyer who's talking to Jesus, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do we have any lawyers in the room? Okay, good, because I, I may, oh, he, you're not a lawyer. <laughs> it's, that's good, because the first service, I, I made fun of lawyers a little bit, and it turned out we had a few um, in here. And if there's one group of people I really don't want to get angry with me, because I've, I've had lawyers mad at me before. My brother happens to be a lawyer, um, and I work for the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services, so I, I deal with lawyers more um, over the course of a day than any rational person should want to. Uh, and this is, this is kind of what, you know, this is, this, is, this is really exactly, this is exactly what a lawyer uh, has a tendency to do. You know, he's trying to define the terms, you know, here. So who is my neighbor? And I think that's a really good and interesting question in looking at this passage because I think this idea of loving our neighbor, this idea of loving our neighbor as ourselves, that's an idea that almost everybody in the world to some extent can sign off on as long as we get some control over the definition of the neighbor. As long as we can as long as we have a little bit of leeway to define who is my neighbor, we can all get on board with this. Because one thing I know is that everybody in here, including myself, everybody in here has somebody or some group of persons or a larger group of people that we would like to find some way of defining out of this command. That we would like to find some way of excluding from our responsibility to love. You know, because that, and that's really what this question is asking. How far does this command go? What is the boundary at which I can say, I have loved all of the people 
that I am required to love, and beyond that, they're just beyond my responsibility. That's really what this question is asking here. Where, where can I stop? At what point have I, have I loved enough? And at what point beyond, beyond this sphere of people, beyond this group of people, uh, beyond this level of closeness to me and immediacy to me, at what point do I get to just stop caring about people? And I, take a moment and think about it for, for yourself who are the people that you would like to define out of this category of neighbor in your life? Who is it that when you look at the people that you know or the people around us in the city or around us in the world, who is it that we would, if, if we had our druthers, we could say, I love this far and beyond that, I just don't really have any responsibility towards them anymore. So the lawyer has asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And here's how Jesus responds. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Just real quickly, priest and Levite, these would be people who the, the audience of Jesus' story would be designed to say, these are good people. These are people who do what they're supposed to do. And here they see the half-dead man, and leave him on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And without getting into, you know, too deep into the distinction of who the Samaritans were, you can just know that a Samaritan, for this individual that Jesus was talking to, this would have been an immediate what he, would, what he would have immediately heard and comprehended was the sort of person that you are trying to exclude from your definition of neighbor, the kind of person you are trying to define out of that category. This is the kind of person that we're talking about. The Samaritans were a different, a different nation uh, from the Jews at this point in history. Uh, they were political rivals, religious rivals, cultural rivals with the Samaritans. Just in every possible way you can think of, there was tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. So this is exactly the sort of person, most likely, that the lawyer is trying to define out of that category of neighbor. Let's keep going. He, the Samaritan, went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now, let's stop here, because if I'm the lawyer, I think what I'm thinking here at this point is, okay, wait a minute, yes, the Samaritan is the one that had mercy on him, but Jesus, you didn't answer the question. 
What was, what was his question? Who is my neighbor? And that's not really what Jesus is talking about here at all. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? Which of these, men, which of these three men acted like a neighbor to the man who had been robbed? That's answering a, a different question. And this man is asked. But he answers, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus said, told him, go and do likewise. And so, you know, again, if I'm, if I'm the lawyer, I'm a little bit frustrated at this point because Jesus, it looks like, didn't even try to answer my question. My question was, where is that boundary? Where can I stop? At what point, at what point have I fulfilled my responsibility to this commandment? Here and, and Jesus, I think if we, if we look at what Jesus is saying, what he's getting at in this story, is that is not a question that we get to ask. We seek to follow Jesus if we seek to walk in the way that he showed us. Who is my neighbor is not a question that we get to ask. We do not get to define out of that category people. We do not get... Uh, we, we do not get the luxury of setting that boundary. Jesus says, well, you do not ask the question, who is my neighbor? You ask the question, what does it look like for you to be a neighbor? Which of these men was a neighbor to this man? We, do not, we don't ask who, we ask how. How do we be a neighbor to the people around us? And this week, if you're somebody who follows the news and the national conversation, this is really the question that we've been asking on a large scale this week. This question of who is my neighbor? At what point as a nation do we get to, do we, can, we stop at, can we stop extending kindness and hospitality? And at what point can we set up a border and say, those people out there, they are not my neighbor. And look, I, I work for the state, like I, I talked about before. I've taken a pledge to keep the public safe. So I understand that there are nuances involved. I understand that, that, that people have a responsibility to keep us safe and that there are security issues to think through. But as followers of Jesus... It remains the case unambiguously that what it is to follow Jesus is to not be able to ask this question. We don't get to ask who is my neighbor because our neighbors are all around us. Our neighbors, there is no border that defines people out of that category. All we have to ask is the question, how? What does it look like to be a neighbor? What does it look like to be a neighbor to the Syrian refugee? What does it look like to be a neighbor to the hungry child in Lincoln? What does it look like to be a neighbor to the homeless person on the street? What does it look like to be a neighbor to illegal immigrants? What does it look like to be a neighbor to people who don't look like me? What does it look like to be a neighbor to people who are rich and more powerful than I am? What does it look like to be a neighbor to people who believe very differently from I do? What does it look like to be a neighbor to people who, honestly, I think are kind of jerks? What does it look like to be a neighbor to those that I've written off and said they're just irredeemable and 
I don't see what there is about them that has any good in them at all. What does it look like to be a neighbor to our family members or acquaintances that we just can't stand to be in the same room with? What does it look like to be a neighbor to, I'll just fill in the blank, you know, whoever it is that as we think through this command to love our neighbor as ourself, whoever it is that you have a tendency to try to define out of that category, what does it look like to be a neighbor to them? And I've got bad news because there's always going to be really good reasons not to be a neighbor to somebody. There's always going to be, you're never going to have any trouble coming up with what seem like really good and really valid reasons not to treat somebody as your neighbor. You know, as I look at this story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, that's actually fairly clear when we look at the priest and the Levite. You know, if we try to be fair and ask the question, why didn't they stop? That priest and that Levite, why didn't they stop on the road and take care of this half-dead man? And I think if we, if we respect them enough to think about it, there are some pretty good reasons not to stop. They were on their way down to Jericho, and they were probably going there for a purpose, and they probably didn't feel like they had time to stop on the road and help this man. That, that, that's a time-consuming task to take care of somebody. So they probably had, and they probably, and they probably had really good things that they were heading to do as well. They probably had really good things that they were doing that made them think, no, I just don't have time to take care of this man. They probably looked, and when they saw this man lying on the side of the road, I'm sure that one of their first thoughts was, oh my goodness, there are robbers out here. This man has just been robbed. We better get where we're going. So for their own safety, they might have thought, it's not safe for us to stay and help this man. And they were probably correct. There was some risk involved with stopping and helping him. They probably looked at this man, and the text says that he was half dead. And they realized, as Jewish priests and a Levite, that to come into contact with a dead body, if it did turn out to be a dead body, would make them ceremonially unclean. And so they wouldn't be able to do their jobs as a priest and as a Levite. And so they thought, well, I can't get my hands dirty like this. And sometimes that can, be a, can look like a valid reason not to be a neighbor to somebody. Because sometimes it looks like we've got to get our hands too dirty and do things and go places that we don't want to go to be a neighbor. We'll never have any trouble finding what looks like a perfectly good reason to define somebody out of that category of a neighbor. So one of my favorite stories about how this uh, has played out in somebody's life um, is a man uh, by the name of Ernest Gordon. And Ernest Gordon uh, was a soldier in World War II uh, for the Scottish government, um, and he was captured by the Japanese in the Battle of Singapore and taken to a Japanese prison camp. Now, if you know much about history, uh, 
you know, there are stories told about how uh, Japanese captors were particularly brutal to their prisoners of war. Uh, they would force them into labor on this railroad that they were building uh, between Burma and Thailand. And about 12,000 Allied soldiers died um, in the construction of this railway because of overwork and exhaustion, malnutrition, malaria, uh, some other diseases um, that I don't know and can't pronounce. Um, 12,000 Allied soldiers died um, in the construction of this railroad. And within a couple of months of arriving in this prisoner of war camp, uh, Captain Gordon uh, got sick and ended up in the camp hospital, which was referred to as the death house. And it was called the death house because when you went in, you didn't come back out alive. Uh, but Captain Gordon uh, was taken care of, nursed back to health by a couple of men there at the camp uh, who knew Jesus, believed in Jesus, and believed in not writing off your neighbor. And so they nursed him back to health. And the three of them decided to think through, what does it look like in this camp? Because the camp had become a very dog-eat-dog place, um, very dark, people stealing food from each other, stealing medicine from each other, doing what they had to do to survive as individuals. They began thinking through, what would it look like in this camp for us to put Jesus' words and actions into action? What would it look like to love our neighbor as ourself here in this camp? And slowly the culture began to change. And as people began to treat each other with love and dignity, the camp came to life again. Now, when the war was near an end, uh, the Allies uh, bombed an army outpost not too far uh, from... Uh, from where this prison camp was located. And it's important to understand, you know, this way of life, this love of neighbor, that not only went against the grain of what was going on amongst the prisoners up until that point, but went very much against the grain of the culture of their Japanese captors. They lived by something called the Bushido Code, which was a very strict honor and shame code. And essentially what it boiled down to was that there's nothing with more honor than to die for your empire. And so if you were wounded or captured, rather than killed in battle, that was the ultimate dishonor. And so when the Allies bombed this Japanese outpost near the prisoner of war camp, some of the wounded Japanese soldiers got in a truck and drove off looking for help. And they pulled up at the entrance of this prisoner of war camp and the Japanese guards wouldn't let them in. He said, no, get that truck out of here. You've brought shame upon yourselves by not staying and dying for your empire. You're not welcome here and go. And so the driver of the truck tried to start it up. The engine wouldn't turn over. And so the Japanese guards came and started pushing the truck out of the camp. And seeing this, Captain Gordon and some of the other soldiers there in the camp, they had a decision to make, and they asked themselves the question, what does it look like for us to love our captors? What does it look like for us to love these neighbors of ours here? 
And so they got pails of water and they got bandages. They went out and they began dressing the wounds of the wounded Japanese soldiers and began taking care of them, giving them water, feeding them, taking care of them. When I preach, essentially what the questions boil down to that I look to address in any sermon is, who is Jesus and what does it look like for me to follow him? And that picture of Captain Gordon cradling the bodies of wounded Japanese soldiers, his captors, his tormentors, that is what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to love our neighbors without boundaries, without restrictions. So we're going to move into a time of communion um, here, and if the band wants to come up, uh, come on up. And as we take communion here, the way that we go about communion, we have uh, some tables set up. There'll be one on the side here, one on the side here, a couple in the back. And we take the bread, which stands as a symbol of the body of Christ broken for us because he loved us and wanted a relationship with us. We dip that bread into the juice, which is a symbol for the blood of Christ shed for us for the remission of our sins, again, because of his deep, deep love for us. And we take and we eat these symbols as a sign of the covenant that Jesus made with us. And so when we partake of those elements, what we are saying, in essence, is, Jesus, we want to join in into the way of life that you showed us. And so today, as we take the bread and the juice, remember that what we are partaking in, what we are signing up for through that, is we want to be people known by and marked by love of neighbor. There is no border on who is our neighbor. Before we do communion, let's quickly go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much that you loved us without restriction. You have not looked at any of us and said that we are beyond the scope of your love. We thank you so much for your son Jesus who came to show us what it is to follow you and to show us what it is to love without restriction. And so, Lord, as we together as a body take the bread and the juice today, we pray that you would take it as our sign today. Lord, we want to live in the way that you showed us. We want to be the people you've called us to be. We want to, love, we want to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, without restriction. And Lord, we pray that your spirit in us would help us to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.